Today's second reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. You can follow along on page 61 of your Red Pew Bible in the New Testament. This is an odd passage, a strange story about Jesus, but a passage I think has something important to say to you and to me. So listen now for God's word. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Then he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine all over. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Well, when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them And went on his way. The word of the Lord. Like young adults have for centuries, when Jesus came home, he went to the synagogue to see his family and friends, even though it would make his parents happy. As was the custom, Jesus stands up to read like a liturgist during worship. And he chooses the first few verses of the 61st chapter of the prophet Isaiah, a well-worn passage, the passage where Isaiah predicts the year of favor, the year of jubilee, when the blind will see, the captives will be set free, the oppressed will find relief, and the poor of this world will all find consolation. It's a beautiful passage. And after reading it, Jesus takes a seat, as one would do before they would preach or expound on the passage. He sits down amongst them to share his thoughts 
on what this passage means. And as Jesus talks, as he preaches, everyone there marvels at the words that are coming out of his mouth and at how far Mary and Joseph's boy has come. They don't even seem really that upset that he claims to be the one to fulfill the prophecy. They're okay with that. They're proud of their boy. But as they praise Jesus with words, he knows, he knows what they're really thinking. These are, after all, his close family and friends. He's grown up with these people, played with these people. He knows these people. He knows that while they're heaping praise upon him, they're likely stewing on the inside. And we know this, we think this, because right in the middle of all their praise, all their adulation, Jesus chooses to quote two familiar proverbs to prod them a bit and to shine a light on what they're really thinking. No doubt, he says, no doubt you'll quote me the old proverb, the old teaching, physician, doctor, heal thyself. You'll probably wonder why I choose to do miracles and mighty deeds in a place like Capernaum, a place full of Gentiles, full of outsiders. Well, you shouldn't be surprised. Whenever the prophets of Israel came to do miracles and wonders, more often than not, it was for Israel's enemies. So don't give me all that fake praise. What you're really feeling is anger, anger at what I've said and what I've done. Derek, people just don't like change. Deep down, people just want things to remain the same. People just don't like it when things change. This has become the stock response. Whenever people reflect with me on frustration expressed, feelings expressed when something beloved has changed or an old practice has gone away or the world is not as it used to be, Derek, people don't like the change. Really? Really, from where I'm sitting, people love to change. People, it's not a knock, it's just true. People spend millions of dollars every year on cosmetics, plastic surgery, new homes, new cars, and new wardrobes. Companies spend billions of dollars to upgrade their facilities, hire new staff, and update their product line. Think about new Coke. And institutions like the church spend countless dollars to upgrade their buildings and enhance their ministries. From where I'm standing, from where I'm sitting, people actually love change. They love new things. What we don't like, not one bit, is the discomfort associated with certain kinds of change. A large portion of the work Jesus came on earth to do was to overhaul and reform the dominating operating systems of his day. Systems that were privileging the needs of a few over the needs of many. And he began this work, this deprogramming, this reprogramming, much to the surprise of everyone. He began this work by challenging the operating system of Jewish society, by challenging the way his people lived and moved in the world, 
a system, an operating system, while far from perfect, was one the people, most people, were comfortable with. Instead of beginning his ministry by calling out Rome or calling out the people's oppressors, Jesus starts by calling out his own people. This is why on this day, in this story, when he names and claims God's preference for the outsider, the people of Nazareth, his friends and family, they become enraged. Who does this boy think he is? This is Mary and Joseph's son. Joy DeGray is an African-American educator, author, presenter, who has spent most of her professional life teaching about the history of race in America and working for racial reconciliation. This is what she does for a living. Well, once while traveling in Baltimore, she went to see the really bad movie called King Kong. Now, if you haven't seen it, God bless you, but if you have seen it, you know that right in the middle of the movie, there's this scene where enormous bugs, I mean really big bugs, fill the screen. They cover the screen, and Joy doesn't like bugs, so she took this moment to step out and go to the bathroom. At the same time, a white man and his son, a boy around nine years old, also walked out of the theater. As they walked toward the bathroom together, Joy said, wow, those bugs, those bugs were out of control. That was definitely the worst part of the movie so far. At this point, they had reached the bathrooms, and the father walked in, but the boy stopped. The boy stopped, turned, and said to Joy, yeah, well, I didn't like those black people. And then he ran into the bathroom. Joy couldn't believe it. I mean, she was just trying to enjoy a day at the movies to make conversation, and here she was being confronted yet again by the scourge of racism. And the worst part was the part of the movie the boy was referencing, the part of the movie the boy was referring to, had actually been a group of multicultural actors portraying violent cannibals. But to the boy, they had all seemed like black people. When she got back into the theater, Joy told her friend Dennis what had happened, and he said, look, Joy, I know this is hard for you, but just let it go. There's nothing you can do about it now. Just let it go. Well, at the end of the movie, as fate would have it, as the theater let out, who would be standing there in the lobby when they arrived but the boy and his father? Joy couldn't believe she was seeing them again, and she felt compelled as she often did, to say something. She walks over to the man and says, do you remember me? He says, yeah, you're the one that left during the bug scene. I did. Do you mind, she said, do you mind if I ask your son a question? Sure, the father said, go ahead. So Joy turned to the boy and said, now that you've seen the whole movie, I'm curious, what's the worst part? And the kid responds without missing a beat, those black people. Whoa, <laughs> the father says, wait a minute, I'm sorry. Um, I mean, sure, he didn't, he didn't really mean, I mean, I'm sorry, the scene was really, you know, it was really, listen, Joy said to the father, it's okay. I'm not saying your son is a racist. I, I don't worry about it. That's not the issue here. The issue is that they weren't all black people, but that's the image in his mind it wasn't the monsters that were horrific to him. It was the people 
And that's the image in his mind. And he's so young. He couldn't see that they were actually different groups of people. He only saw black people. And Joy can see that the father is taking in what she is telling him, and she can see that he is tortured by what he is hearing. He is uncomfortable and even angry. I don't know, he finally says. I don't know. that The problem is just so big, I don't know if we can ever make it right. I just don't know if we can ever make it right. Perhaps, Joy responded, perhaps, but I have to believe we can. At that point, the man and his son turned to leave the theater. But when they got to the top of the escalator, the father stopped and he turned around and walked back to Joy. And he says to her, looking her in the eye, but I will make it right with my son because I can make it right with him. The people who know us the best and love us the most, are in a really tough spot. They more than anyone know what we desperately need to hear, and they more than anyone have the most to lose by having the courage to say it. When Jesus calls out the people he grew up with for their jealousy and the resistance of outsiders, it's because he knows them and loves them enough to tell them the truth they needed to hear. The only way the blind are going to see and the captives are going to be set free and the oppressed are going to find relief and the poor discover consolation, the only way any of that's going to happen is if we let the truth, the truth that we need to hear work on us and challenge us and maybe even anger us and eventually convict us. And as we know from experience, the truth is not easy to hear. The story today in Luke's whole entire gospel, actually, isn't really about Jews or Romans. It isn't about Nazarenes or people in Jerusalem. It's about every race and nationality. It's about all the crowds of every time and place who, when they meet one, who tells them the truth about themselves, will go go to almost any length to silence the messenger. This is a story about how far we will go to avoid the pain that comes with seeing the truth with our own eyes. I love the end of the story. I know it's weird. Jesus almost died, but I find this little scene at the cliff fascinating. It's fascinating to me that when confronted by the anger and rage of his family and his friends, Jesus doesn't try to negate it or suppress it or control it or smite those who express it. In fact, it seems that Jesus intentionally stirs up their anger and allows their anger to drive him and them to the edge of a cliff. He lets them feel their anger, their frustration, their shame long enough for them to see where it will take them. And when they reach the edge of their understanding, when they reach that cliff, Jesus shows them his love for them again, one more time, by passing through them and leaving them with one another, with their anger, and with the truth of his words. 
And I really wonder, I really hope, I really hope that in that moment, as Jesus' family and friends stood there at the edge of the cliff, enraged, I wonder if in that moment, perhaps some, if not all of those people, saw for the first time the love embedded in his critique of them. I wonder if after they had worked through and felt all their rage and anger and shame, I wonder if in that moment they were finally able to see the love expressed in his words. The 12-step program has saved so many people from addiction. And it's a program that understands that you can't change people with mere willpower or knowledge despite the fact that most religious people seem to think that willpower and knowledge are all one needs to overcome what shackles us. For example, you don't become a more charitable person by saying to yourself, be more charitable, be more charitable, be more charitable. You don't become more kind and gracious by saying, Derek, be more kind and gracious. Derek, be more kind and gracious. Especially if your name's not Derek. That will not work. (laughs) My point is you, you become more charitable, you become more kind, you become more gracious by noticing, by seeing when you're not being charitable, when you're not being kind, when you're not being gracious, when you see that and you sit in that moment and you weep over it, that's when growth happens. The trouble is, None of us really want to see clearly our faults and our biases, which is why so often the truth has to be shoved in our face by someone who loves us, or we have to fall right into it. We may not like it, but in order for God's vision for the world to come to pass, we need to hear the truth. We have to hear the truth that we need to hear, the truth from God, the truth from Christ, but perhaps most importantly, the truth from one another. And when it's heard, when the truth is received, we also need to allow ourselves to have an authentic response to the words we really don't want to hear. I don't know about you, but like I told the kids, when someone calls me out on behavior, my first response is rarely gratitude. When my 13-year-old daughter, who is much more sophisticated than my 8-year-old son, when she calls me out on my behavior, I do not feel a deep and abiding joy because she's always right, because she knows me so well. Now, when someone I love or someone close to me first tells me a truth I don't want to hear, I typically get angry. I feel ashamed. I feel bad. But if I stay at the table and sit in my anger a while and hold on to that rage and let myself feel all those feelings, something happens every time. The truth convicts me and helps me see. God's vision for the world, articulated by Jesus and found in the prophets of old, is not a vision that will come to pass without some discomfort, without some anger and pain. The change that needs to happen in our world will be uncomfortable because it requires us to see and accept and own the things about ourselves that we don't want 
to see. The truth will set you free, but it's going to hurt first. I mean, all the anger we see, the rhetoric we hear in the political and cultural landscape right now, it should not surprise us. We believe that God is at work in the world, right? Doing something new, bringing good news to the poor, releasing the captives, recovering sight for people who are blind, freeing the oppressed. And if we believe that, we believe then that God is speaking the truth all around this world. And the truth is not easy to hear. My prayer today for you and your family, for this church, for this community, and for our nation and world, my prayer is that we would have the courage to receive the truth when it's spoken to us and to feel what we feel when we hear it and then wait and trust that that truth will convict us and in time set us free. Amen.